Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, leave us a review so it'll help get us into the ears and on the phones of other people, uh, and head on over to mantalks.com and check out some of our other blog posts and podcast episodes. There have been some really, really great interviews l- lately, uh, including Jordan Harbinger uh, from Art of Charm and Maxon Kip, who talks about claiming your power but also claiming your purpose. An absolutely phenomenal episode that we've had a lot of great feedback from. So joining me today is a guy that I found on YouTube. And uh, and before you write it off, he's a doctor and he's a neuroscientist. So I didn't just find some like random dude on YouTube and was like, oh, I'm going to interview that guy. No, I found a guy by the name of Dr. Bo Lotto. And Bo has had a few main stage TED Talks that have gone pretty viral. Uh, he's a globally renowned neuroscientist who studies human perception. And, and that's really taken him well beyond the scientific domain and into fields of education and into arts and a business, public engagements. And in the, in the broad, broadest sense, is at the core of what of what Bo does. So, so whether he's creating scientific experiments, giving talks, or maybe making TV programs, uh, it's really about public engagement. So the reason why I wanted to have him on is for a few reasons. One, I watched a five-minute video that he did talking about perception, talking about how we as human beings perceive things and how our brains are not structured for change how our brains are structured to keep things the way that they are. So so any form of change, anything that's uncertain in our lives, uncertainty is a huge threat to our brain. It codes it, actually it codes it as a threat. And so anytime that we're facing change, whether it's in our relationship, whether it's in our business, whether it's in our, our health, our fitness routines, our nutritional routines, it is a huge, huge threat to our brains. And so he talks about some of the neuroscience behind this, but he's also extraordinarily uh, philosophical. I found it so engaging what he was talking about. And in this interview, we dive into some of these core components where he talks a little bit about the neuroscience, but he talks a lot about how the brain actually functions and how we can, with this knowledge, start to actually create real and and real lasting change in our life. Not because we've changed habits, but we've because we've changed awareness. Honestly, this is one of the best conversations that I I feel like I've had in a long time. Uh, I stopped the recording after it was done. I thanked him. And the very next day I woke up and listened to the recording because I was like, man, I learned so much during this interview. So I sincerely hope you enjoy uh, this interview with Dr. Bo Lotto. I encourage you to go look up uh, some of the work that he's doing. Uh, We touched base on a little bit of it. And uh, before we get started, I just want to remind all the guys that are out there listening to head on over to Facebook, join the Man Talks community. We've got a couple thousand guys that are in that community now from all over the world. We have some great conversations, uh, you know, some great support, accountability in there of like-minded men who are holding one another accountable. So I encourage you to join. That's totally free. And it's just a great space to talk about everything from fitness and fatherhood to finance 
finances to business and entrepreneurship, you name it, parenting, it happens in there. So go join Be Free. Uh, is a, it's an absolute blast. And we have some really great convos. So without any further ado, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for helping us. Uh, thank you so much for manning it forward and helping us get the podcast into the ears and onto the phones of other people. And I really sincerely hope you enjoy this episode. So without any other further delay, please welcome Dr. Bo Lotto. No, thanks for having me. I am so thrilled that you are here today. I literally, as I was saying before, I was on YouTube and I came across one of your six minute videos and I was so hooked that for the next hour, I think I went down the rabbit hole. I watched you talk at Google and a few other things, your TED talk. And, and, uh, I just remember writing my assistant and saying, we got to have this guy on the podcast because it's incredible. So I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, so thank you. And, and let's just start off with, with the question that we normally dive into, which is, Tell us a story or a defining moment that you've experienced in your life that has made you who you are today. Yeah. Well, the defining moment was probably my birth. So that's pretty much made me uh, who I am today. And, the, and that seems like a silly thing to say, and in some sense it is. But it's the context in which I was born. And I was born into a family of four older sisters and no brothers. And, uh, and a wonderful mother, uh, who is the sort of epitome of motherhood. And a wonderful father, but he w lives somewhere else. So I was effectively raised by five women. And I think to a large extent that defines a lot of who I am because I was both the youngest, but in some sense I was also meant to be the man of the house. So I grew up uh, with my sisters playing with me as a doll on the one hand, but also had a chainsaw at the age eight on the other. <laughs> oh, that's that uh, that dichotomy that 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 you grew up with must have been uh, very polarizing in many senses. Actually, it's interesting. It wasn't. And in fact, of course, kids grow up in incredibly diverse types of families. And for them, it's normal. And so the beauty of it is they're able to assimilate all these things. And rather than being polarizing, I would argue that they actually create more complex individuals. I mean, a simple example is someone who's brought up in a bilingual family. And the kids move seamlessly back and forth between those two languages and think simultaneously in those languages, as opposed to someone who learns to be fluent in a second language later on in life. In fact, they're fundamentally integrated in their brain. Uh, it takes them longer to, to learn to speak, but when they do, they, they're, they literally become more open individuals. Hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, one of the reasons, and this kind of uh, segues in, is that one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on here to talk about is is really the idea and the concept of of innovation, and then the idea of change. And there's a few other things that that I definitely want to dive into. But one of the core components that I heard you talk about in one of your talks was this idea that there are really two aspects to innovation: efficiency and creativity. And I was hoping that you could maybe unpack some of that a little bit because. Because, you know, a lot of our listeners are in, you know, the innovative space and we're trying to innovate every single day. It's a huge part of our of our daily lives now, especially as entrepreneurs. And so I was wondering if you could unpack the sort of uh, neuroscience and, and some of the key components behind innovation. Sure. So innovation, of course, relates not just to entrepreneurs and especially tech and particular tech entrepreneurs. It's actually a way of living life. So really you adapt or you die. Um, and this is true throughout evolution. So innovation is really about adaptation at the most basic level. And there are two sides, very generally speaking, there are two sides that, that make up innovation. There's efficiency and there's creativity. And 
almost all companies begin with creativity and then they move towards efficiency, which is a great idea. And the problem is, is that that's a great idea in a world that doesn't change is to then stay within efficiency. But the problem is the world does change, which is why you then have to start that cycle over and over again. But instead, usually what happens is that people remain in the context of efficiency and the best environment for efficiency is competition. And they try to make things more and more efficient while at the same time, literally becoming less efficient because the world's changing around them. And the, the challenge is going back to creativity because it requires a completely different context. And also we have a very sort of uh, distorted view of what creativity actually is. As we start this conversation, we'll, we'll maybe get onto the idea that there is nothing actually creative about creativity. Creativity is actually about a way of being. Um, and it's actually quite logical and it's something we can learn. And there are some fundamental barriers to creativity, which we often don't think about, which have everything to do with perception. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So, so let's, let's just keep down that, that vein a little bit and, and sort of unpack some of the core tenets of creativity, because I think for the most part, people, you know, think creativity and they immediately go to arts, right? And go to music production or curation and painting and writing and, and that kind of stuff. Can, can you unpack a little bit more around what you're talking about in terms of defining creativity in our everyday lives? Yeah, creativity is a way of being. Creativity is a way of being that en enables you to step into uncertainty. So one of the, probably the fundamental challenge that your brain evolved to deal with, not just yours, every brain, and in fact, not just human brains evolved to deal with is the challenge of uncertainty. Every piece of data that your brain receives from its senses, from its eyes, from its ears, from its skin is inherently ambiguous. It's inherently meaningless in a number of ways. First of all, your brain has no direct access to the physical world other than through the information that it's receiving from that world. So for instance, the light coming from surfaces is what we have access to, but not the surfaces themselves. The problem is the light is completely ambiguous as to what the nature of the world actually is. And your listeners can demonstrate to this, this to themselves by simply holding up their finger one of their fingers in front of their face and lining up their fingers so that's the same height as something larger and far away. And once they get that, you then have to realize that they're not the same size. Your finger is smaller than the thing at a distance. And this is because the data conflates multiple aspects of the world. But we have no access to that world. And what's more, the data doesn't actually tell you what to do. It doesn't come with instructions. The meaning of a rock for an ant is completely different from the meaning of one of our evolutionary ancestors which means that the only way your brain can generate perceptions of the world that are useful is by using its history of experience, right? And so that's one of the key aspects of beginning the conversation about thinking about creativity is that all the data that you're using to generate perceptions of the world and not just perceptions, conceptions, behaviors is all grounded in your history of experience because that's the only data that's useful that you have access to. And not just your experience, but the experience of your family, of your culture, of your evolutionary ancestors. Right? And that's a fundamental point when thinking about creativity and how can we ever learn to see differently, which is really what creativity is about. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's, 
from and and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but from my perception, what I'm kind of hearing is that creativity is based on our perception, and per, our perception is fundamentally impacted by our past, by our past experiences, and and um, uh, our past endeavors, and how we've seen the world in in our past. Is that Absolutely. roughly accurate? Yeah, very much so. And what that means is that what does what does history give us? What history actually gives us are biases and our assumptions. Which means every single time you open your eyes, you're looking at the world through your assumptions, through your biases. You can never escape or step outside these biases. It's impossible, right? And that's what history gives you are these biases. And the first step to seeing differently is to become fundamentally aware that everything you do has a bias and an assumption. In fact, everything you do is a reflex that's determined by your biases and assumptions. And if you don't come to that awareness, you're never going to have the possibility of ever seeing differently because you'll never question or think to question what your bias and assumptions are, much less where they came from. Hmm. Yeah. So this is the assumption bias that that uh, I think I heard you talk about. So so how do we how do we begin to? I mean, it sounds like obviously a, a sense of awareness around those assumption biases is really like the first. Yeah, maybe 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 I'm wrong, but it sounds like it's maybe the first step in sort of addressing this. But how do we start to become more aware of our of our biases in in assumptions? That's a great question. I mean, first of all, we have to fundamentally accept that we have them, and not just some some of the time, but all the time. And we also can be aware of the fact that a lot of these biases are great; they keep us alive. Every time you take a step, you have hundreds of biases that the floor is not going to give way, their legs aren't going to give way, right? But sometimes. What was once useful, a bias that was useful, is no longer useful. Why? Because the world changes. So once you have that acceptance that you're always seeing the world through biases, then as you say, what's the next step? It's to reveal what those biases are and how can we do that? Well, the problem with that or the problem in doing so is we almost never know why we do what we do. Our biases are almost always hidden to us. So sometimes and often the best person to reveal your biases to you is not you. It's someone else or it's an experience. In fact, that's in some sense what defines some of the best technologies is that they enable us to see things that we couldn't see before. They, they open us to new experiences that reveal our biases to ourselves or a diverse group of people. So when you're with a diverse group of people, I mean, the power of change, the power of adaptation begins with diversity. And if you have a diverse group of people with you and in, in a particular kind of environment, you're necessarily confronted with biases that are different from your own. And in doing so, you reveal your own biases to yourself and they to you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because what was really prevalent for me and, and standing out was, man, diversity must be so important when it comes to team building and friend circles. And it's interesting because as we, as cultures and society, uh, you know, there there seems to be more divides in terms of segregation between political parties and, and that kind of stuff. We are sort of inherently becoming more closer and closer to people who think and act just like us. And so we're sort of isolating ourselves in this bubble of, of people that really do think like us quite a bit. And uh, rather than surrounding ourselves with other people that have different perspectives. So from some of your research and your and your insight, how important do you think that things like having diversity within your friend circle and within the work environment teams actually is? And how do we actually go about implementing that? And diversity is essential. 
And there are a number of reasons why, not only within your friend circle, but also within yourself. We, we, we forget that we're actually a group within. We're completely contextual. You and I will be different people on this call than we will in other aspects of our life with at home, with family or with friends or out in the nightclubs or whatever. So we are very contextual. So we're multiple personalities, in fact. So we need to celebrate diversity on the one hand. On the other hand, um, there are a number of reasons why we struggle with that. The first of which is that we fear uncertainty more than anything else. To be in to be uncertainty is one of the biggest causes of stress in our daily lives. And so to be with someone that challenges what you assume to be true is actually to question you existentially. And what's more, during evolution, if you didn't know, you died. So almost every behavior you do, you do in an attempt to actually decrease uncertainty. And in fact, this is why, one reason why Uber is successful and uh, apps like it. Not simply because they decrease the friction ordering a taxi. It's because they tell you when your taxi is going to arrive. Right? If you go on the street corner in New York and you try to hail a taxi, five minutes goes past, your cortisol levels are up, you're stressed because you don't know what's going to happen. When arrive and then and one comes. If instead I tell you, look, go to the street corner, wait for five minutes, your taxi is going to be there. In fact, I'm going to even show you where it is. Your cortisol levels don't rise. You remain calm. You get other things done, right? So we hate uncertainty. So to be confronted with people that are different from ourselves can create a great deal of uncertainty, which is why often people will then avoid that. The other is we tend to compare people. We tend to com compare similarity in a fairly superficial way. So we might compare similarity in terms of skin color or sexual orientation or gender, when in fact we can have far deeper levels of similarity that belie the superficial ones. You know, someone who's from New York versus someone who's in London are, can actually be very similar, even though they might come from completely ethnic or religious back, different backgrounds. So in terms of uncertainty like how do we start to leverage this knowledge around how that's because I mean, it sounds like it's really a huge component of what drives our daily lives like what as you were unpacking that as you were kind of talking about how uncertainty you know even that example with a taxi cab it it made me think about how much of our lives is driven from a sense of uncertainty, you know, the products that we buy, the jobs that we take, the careers that we have, the, you know, the, the necessity to have a certain amount of money in the bank accounts that we can feel safe and stable. How do we start to look at our lives without, I guess, without sort of feeling like overwhelmed at the sense that like knowing this information, knowing that, that, that this uncertainty or this avoidance of uncertainty is running our lives on a daily basis. How do we begin to integrate this information? Because it sounds like this knowledge could lead to a sense of being able to actually create uh, a deeper sense of change. Like Alan wants, I, he's got this great talk about change and he says, you know, what if, uh, what if you are the way you are and you just simply can't change and there's nothing you can do about it? Well, it seems that this knowledge of uncertainty and how it's driving our daily behavior might be a key or a sort of a part of an unlock code for us to create some resemblance of change. Is there, is there a link between this knowledge of, of avoidance of uncertainty and being able to create change in our life? Oh, absolutely. So the, if we go back to what we were talking about before, that the, one, the first steps to creativity or to see differently more generally is 
to first have awareness that everything you're doing is guided and determined to a large extent by your biases and assumptions, many of which you inherited. In fact, most of our life happened without us there in some sense. Then to actually figure out what they are. And then the, the third step is to question them. But to question what you assume to be true already is to step into uncertainty. But the irony and that the only place we can go to see differently is the very place that evolution evolved for us to avoid. If you, everything's happy inside your, your village, you've got your roof, you've got your food, what a stupid idea to go see what's on the other side of that hill, right? On the other hand, if we, because the world changes, if we don't, we will be selected out, which is why evolution gave us a solution to uncertainty, that it gives us a drive to step forward. There are a number of drives that enable us to step forward, one of which is fear. Fear can be incredibly powerful motivation for stepping into uncertainty. The problem is we often go from fear to anger, whereas, and what happens with anger is you actually become incredibly certain. You become morally judgmental. Your brain almost goes to this almost euphoric state because it feels so certain about itself. But there's another direction, which is you can go from fear to asking questions. You can go from fear to uncertainty, to exploration. Another motivator is play. Play is one reason why play evolved is because it enables us. It is the engine for stepping into uncertainty, which is why in my second TED talk, I talk about science is not being like play, but actually being play. In fact, play with intention, because play is a way of being that enables you to not just step into uncertainty, but love it. To not know who's going to win the game is why play is fun. To not know the punchline of a joke is why it's funny. That's also where we create our possibility. That's the, that's the way of being that enables us to then ask questions. Hmm. I mean, right off the top of my head, it, it seems like, and I don't know why I'm drawing this parallel, but it seems like there is, there must be some form of link. And I don't know if this is true at a neurological level, but that there must be some form of link between our happiness levels and, and our ability to be happy and fulfilled and our relationship with uncertainty and certainty in our life. Has, have you seen any research around that or is that something that you've like dove into before? Yeah, so some people have more tolerance to uncertainty than others. To be able to both tolerate uncertainty, of course, can not only lead to a more adaptive and creative life, but it can also lead to a more interesting life. But it doesn't necessarily always lead to a happy life, right? Because... Right, Because if you're questioning what you assume to be true, often that will lead you in directions that, by definition, you don't expect uh, or anticipate. And it can lead you in directions that, you know, ultimately are not necessarily good. I mean, I actually believe that in some sense, in some sense, that we don't make good decisions. What we do is we make decisions and then we make them good. The meaning of data, the meaning of information isn't inherent in the data. The meaning of the data is often how we respond to it. So when we think of the history of experience that guides our perception, it's not the history of what the data turned out to be. It's the history of what we saw it before, simply how we saw it, how we responded. So everything that someone does in the moment right now will become part of their future past. Hence, the value when talking to people about saying, look, you don't have an objective view of the world. In fact, while the world exists, there is a physical world. This is not postmodern relativism. It's just that you don't see it. The world isn't colored. It couldn't be, the color that you see couldn't be closer to you. It's literally inside your head projected outward. So 
what you're literally seeing is the meaning of that data based on history. And people often will think, like if we think about tre- the, the dress gate, that illusion with the dress, and people became actually really concerned that, my God, if my colors are different from your colors, what does this mean for what I see? They became really, really uncertain and nervous and almost afraid. But actually, the p- message is much more positive. It means you become an active participant in the process of making meaning, not just an innocent bystander of it, not just a responder, but a creator. But you need that way of being that enables you to do that. And often that way of being is facilitated by other people. So we're often so self-focused. How can I do something for myself? Far more interesting is how can you create that environment for other people to step into uncertainty? Hmm. Really, I mean, it's really interesting because uh, a few months ago, I interviewed Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, and she talks about the neuroscience of emotions and how our brains are pattern recognizing machines and, you know, basically take patterns that are out in the world and then take that pattern, turn it into data and then make meaning out of it. And it sounds like what you're saying is really with that knowledge that that that's exactly what's happening. Are we are we responsible or are we capable of interpreting that data in a in a in a different way? Are we are we able to alter the meaning of the of the information that we're receiving from the pattern recognition out in the world, or or is that something that we just are aware of? I, I think both actually. I and mean, this comes down to the question of free will. And if we have free will, my suggestion is that we have no free will or very little free will in the moment. The suggestion is that everything you're doing right now, especially if you don't have awareness of perception itself, everything you're doing is just a reflex, a complex reflex, but a reflex nonetheless that's grounded in your history, your biases. So the idea is that you're presented with a stimulus, okay? And what you, you exist within what, what I'd call your space of possibility. These are all the different ways you could respond to this stimulus. But what you're going to do is you're going to respond according to how you responded before. You're going to go to the next most likely possible. And that shape of possibility is determined by your biases and assumptions. Your brain never does big jumps or big leaps. It always goes to the next most likely possible. That, in a sense, is, is a highly reflexive response. A bit like if I hit your patellar tendon, your leg goes out. But where we might have some free will is in two places. The first one is in the past, where I cannot change the events that happened. I can change the meaning of those events. So in that sense, your brain is constantly a time traveler. In one way, your brain never really exists in the moment, you could argue. It's always moving back and forth, and it's always embodying the past and anticipating the future. Now, if I am shaped, my perceptions, my responses, my behaviors, shaped by the history of my past meanings of information, then what I can do is I can go back and I can't change that event, but I can change the meaning of it. That's largely what most therapies are trying to do. Um, uh, behavioral therapies. They're trying to reframe the meaning of past events. So what you can do is you can go back and change your future past. So you can change your past meaning and therefore change the likelihood of how you will respond in the future. The other point is that you can put yourself in different kinds of environments. Now, you can't necessarily predict how you'll respond or control how you respond, but what you can do is create the possibility of encountering new kinds of data, new kinds of experiences, which your brain will then respond to. So you can change your ecology. 
And one of the arguments I suggest to people is rather than having this idea that you can step outside your box to see differently, to me, it's a silly idea because all you do is you step into a new box. You can never leave your biased assumptions. So what you can do is expand your box, right? You can increase the dimensionality. So rather than shift, expand, expand your assumptions, expand your biases. I, I mean, it's, whew, there's so much in there that I that I love. I'm like, feel like I'm geeking out right now. This is great. But one of the, one of the things there's there's a couple of things that really stood out to me, which was if I could just summarize the the one of the main points that I really got was this concept or idea around your past future. So how the the parts of ourselves in the past really determine our current states and our future perceptions, and then how we can you know, through therapies or what, whatever the case may be, basically look back at those past circumstances, redefine the meaning of those past circumstances, thus reshaping our future. Is that roughly accurate? That's roughly it. And what's interesting is that uh, my particular publisher has told me that one of the shortest lived genre of book is the history book. It lasts roughly eight, eight years on average on the shelf. What does that mean? You would have thought history, you know, surely if anything's stable, it's history. It's happened, right? But what history books are constantly doing is reframing the past, the re, what I call re-meaning it. And that re-meaning does a number of things. It will shift by shifting the meaning of the, of the data. It will alter how we will behave in the future, but it can also complexify it. We can say, look, that particular interpretation was actually quite simplistic. It's much more complex than that. And a more complex search space is actually far more useful and far more creative than a simple search space. We know this from mathematics, that if you have a, a multidimensional search space, in other words, you can move in multiple directions at any one point, you have a much more likely possibility of finding a useful solution than if you have a very simple search space, like a line. You can just go up and down on that line. But imagine if you occupied a three-dimensional space. Well, now at any point, you can go in lots of dimensions or an eight-dimensional space. It, it sounds like what you're talking about really is like the the one of the challenges that you know artificial intelligence scientists face right now is the function of computers very much search linearly. And whereas our brain, and again, this, correct me if I'm wrong, please, but um, our brain searches in sort of like a unilateral or... Um, uh, not not a linear standpoint it'll get a it'll get a query and it'll search out throughout the entirety of itself or the main parts of itself that it that it feels might have the information whereas a computer has to go down certain pathways one by one at a very high speed and this is where things like quantum computing are really going to open up the pathways and and can potentially create more computing power that's sort of in line with how our brain actually functions that's right i mean natural computation is very different from the computations that you often see in computers. And in fact, a lot of my lab is actually focused on our research on trying to understand how we can actually get what we call artificial life systems to behave similarly to the human brain or just brains in general, but also to enable those systems to understand how the brain actually works. But this is also not just true for computers. This is also true for people. The more stable our biases become, the more rigid we also become the more likely, the more, the less willing we are to ask questions and to doubt ourselves, the less open we will also become, the more rigid we become. And actually, in some sense, 
the less useful we, we can become, right? Uh, and so we experience this as individuals all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because, the, you know, the last part of the conversation and this part of the conversation, I feel like the, the question that popped into my head earlier was it seems like time is is really at the sort of center of all of a lot of this, you know, our perception and our definition of time. And how does time actually impact things like our assumption bias and things like, you know, our ability to change or our ability to innovate? How does time sort of fit into all of this? Because it seems to almost be at the core of what's shaping things like our assumption bias and the fact that, you know, our future is uh, our future perceptions are often based on our on our past experiences. Well, time, of course, is is a is a relative thing. I mean, uh, and our perception of time in particular is highly contextual. But your brain is effectively creating narratives. It's a, in some sense, it's a physical manifestation of your history of experience, of your history of time. And so whenever you get a stimulus, what happens is you then get what we call an, an attractor state. You get an emergent state inside your brain, a bit like a whirlpool, right? a stable state. And that's, well, that is effectively a representation of what you are seeing, doing, believing, conceiving. And then more information or more data comes in, more noise, and it kicks it out of that tractor state into the next one. So you're effectively, time is, a, is moving between these different states inside your brain. And each one is a consequence of, metaphorically at least, your bias and assumptions that are constraining the sequence that you'll move from one perception to another. And so when we think about being able to be more expansive, imagine if we had multiple possibilities of directions we could move. Right? In that sense, you can almost imagine sort of parallel possible time frames that you can move in between them. So what's really interesting, though, is that if you want to shift someone from A to B, which is in some sense a, a temporal thing, um, the first step is not to go to B. The first step is to go from A to not A. Right? What do I mean by that? If I give you a stimulus, I hit your patellar tendon, you're going to generate a meaning. And you can't help but generate that meaning. And that meaning will then determine your perceptions of behavior. So the first step is not to create a new meaning. The first step is just to let go of that one, to step into not A. And that's now to step into uncertainty. Once you're, and that's something you have control over. What you don't necessarily have control over is what will happen next. If you're truly on uncertainty, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen next. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting because it's almost like uncertainty is the sort of like anti-matter of the emotional space. You know, like if you want to step out of a meaning or something that you're attached to and you step into uncertainty, it's just like the void of knowing. And then you can, from that space, then choose or see other options that are meaningful? In a way, yes. I mean, I can give you a, a, an example that people could actually do right um, today. So I'll do it in the context of going for a swim with my, one of my sons. Right? We, we jump into a river in southwest England, and it's a very cold river. And we get out, and I say, come on, Theo, let's just walk to the car with, without our shirts, without our shoes. And, and there's a bit of a wind. And Theo says, God, it feels a bit cold. And I say, well, let's think about it differently. Step into an ate. Just feel the wind. Don't attach a negative or positive to it. Just feel the wind. And if it feels cold, don't attach a negative or positive to the coldness. Just feel the cold. And after about 20 seconds of walking, he says, I no longer feel cold. So imagine 
your listeners going into a cold shower, taking a cold shower, just letting yourself feel the cold, but don't feel it as positive or negative. In that sense, you're actually stepping into not A. You're letting go of the idea that the cold is a negative experience, but doesn't mean you don't have the experience itself. Hmm. I love it. I love it. It's, it's so I'm going to try that. Um, mostly because I do the whole Wim Hof thing and, uh, I don't, I'm not too sure if you're familiar with him, but he does the, uh, the, the breath work and then the, the cold showers and, and cold water swimming. So I'm going to, I'm going to give that a go. Maybe it'll help me extend my time. <laughs> it's literally an exercise. And in some sense, yeah. the whole process of stepping into uncertainty is, is an exercise. And this is ultimately is fundamentally related to human relationships and how we engage with each other. So in, in terms of, I mean, just before we move on, because I, I want to dive into a little bit uh, around the lab of misfits and, and the work that you and your team are doing. But in terms of uncertainty, what's possible on the other side of continually building that sort of quote unquote muscle around leaning into uncertainty? Like what's possible on the other side of that? How do you mean possible? What, I mean, what, what's the consequence, potential consequence of that? More like what are the results that, that people can expect? Because I think for a lot of people, uncertainty at an unconscious level, like we've discussed, is something that we just inherently avoid. And so it's uh, maybe I'm coming at it from carrot and the horse sort of standpoint of, of you know, giving a, a tangible, here's some results that you can expect or experience on the other side of being able to lean into uncertainty a little bit more in our daily lives. Yeah, so a number of consequences would be, one, you'll live a more diverse life. You'll have more diverse experiences. You have the potential of actually becoming more adaptable. And we know the most successful systems in nature are the most adaptable systems. The most successful companies are the most most adaptable companies. The most successful individuals are the most adaptable. You'll potentially have better relationships. Because, and this is fundamentally, in some sense, what all the work is about, is about enabling people to engage in conflict in a new way. And if you want, we can explore that, that question. And, it, and it's, a, it's a potential direct consequence and benefit of understanding the nature of perception. Because as soon as you understand perception, you're literally ignorant if you enter conflict with knowing instead of not knowing. So right now we're, we're, we have a conflict situation where we, each of us will enter conflict with the idea, if you and I are in conflict, it would be as if I put you on one end of the line and you put me on the opposite end of the same line. Now, my task is to prove that you're wrong and to shift you towards me. Your task is to do exactly the opposite. Prove that I'm wrong and to shift me towards you. In other words, your aim is to not move at all. And my aim is to not move. In fact, in some sense, that's what violence is, to literally physically grab you and pull you towards me. Right? So conflict, the way we experience it normally, is set up to win but the irony is that it's only in conflict that we ever have the possibility of learning. To be confronted with a situation or a person that's different from what we expect is to be in conflict. Right now, you and I are in conflict in some sense. You're being presented with stuff that you didn't expect. You're asking me questions that I didn't expect, and yet we're enjoying it. Why? Because we're both entering conflict with questions instead of answers. We're entering conflict with uncertainty instead of certainty. We're entering conflict with humility. And that's what nature does. That's biology. Because only in that possibility do you have the possibility of learning rather than winning. So the value of engaging in this process of being able to go to not A and all that's required to do so creates the possibility of actually learning to become a more complex individual, more diverse internally. And in doing so, more adaptable, 
better relationships, etc. It's incredible. It's incredible. And I mean, what you just laid out there is it makes a, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm like, I'm using air quotes, which nobody can see right now. Um, <laughs> this is apparently, I like using my hands on podcasts, it's but um, no, I, yes, it literally making sense in the moment. Made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I'm, I'm actually curious just before, just before we move on to the, to the work that, that uh, you guys are doing at Lab of Misfits, the, the one, the one thing that I was curious about is, you know, in, in the recent years, we've seen a big rise of um, the sort of impacts of things like psychedelics on the brain and how it can expand creativity. And, you know, you've got like the book Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler. He kind of dives into some of the work that's being done by people to to use psychedelics and psilocybin as a means to to expand. And we see a lot of CEOs in Silicon Valley and whatnot that are experimenting with microdosing. And, and I'm just curious as to your perspective, I, I don't necessarily need your, your personal view on it, but just to your perspective on whether or not these types of things are even are, are relevant or beneficial um, is, is there merit to some of the research that's being done to them and, and and you know is there is there a positive side to looking in that area to expand our creativity to expand our perception to overcome some of these uh, inherent biases that we face yes the answer is yes and one of the reasons why we're not doing it is simply because we have biases. We have a certain perception of them. The other problem, of course, is that sometimes, of course, they can create tremendously physiological problems. Often that's dose dependent. And so people will approach it in an at least naive, if not ignorant way. And, and they're not aware of the effects of dosage itself. But what we do know from the research, and this isn't my research, but it is something that we're increasingly becoming active and uh, actively involved, is that Psychedelics like psilocybin coming from, for instance, magic mushrooms can one dose can kick people out of depression for up to six months. And what's going on there? A hypo this is purely a hypothesis. What might be going on there is effectively your brain gets stuck in this attractor state, this ru rumination going back and forth, back and forth, and it's stuck like a whirlpool. It can't get itself out of there. Often what we, that's why we need other people to help us get out of our own rumination. It's very difficult to do it yourself. But pharmacologically, you can possibly kick yourself out, at least metaphorically, and disrupt that attractor state. And once you've done so, you have the possibility of now behaving differently and therefore maintaining yourself out of that state. So it's almost like a catalyst for more positive behavior or at least just different behavior. What's more, we also know that it changes the connectivity within the brain. And in some sense, what it does is it increases in, in some areas, like for instance, the visual cortex, the visual part of our brain, increases the connectivity. Now, if we think back to that conflict question, it means that now you actually have more spaces, more directions to move. Because if you and I are in conflict, rather than us being on, a, on opposite ends of the same line, imagine instead what we did is we made it a square. We increase the dimensionality of space. Now, where we're at the same opposite ends of the same line, we're actually on the same side of a square. What did that mean? It mean we opened up the possibility of movement. Now, psychedelics might have that possibility, right? At least metaphoric, uh, metaphorically, if not literally. So again, the idea is that we 
to, in order to be creative, we need to expand the number of dimensions that we can move in at any one time. doesn't mean we make big jumps. It means that in one moment in time, rather than go up and down, I might go up, down, right, left, 30 degrees, 40 degrees. In other words, I can move in multiple directions. So I have many more different possible states. Yeah. And the other thing that's really interesting is to experience psychedelics, you often, when people associate with the psychedelic themselves, they'll feel small, but fundamentally connected to the world. What's fascinating is that's a very similar state, emotional state, to the state of awe and wonder. When people experience awe, they feel small and fundamentally connected. When they feel depressed, they feel small and fundamentally disconnected. So in some sense, we could also use psychedelics to better understand the state of awe and wonder that's engendered in the brain, because that's one of the most fundamental steps to enable people to then step forward, to explore. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's interesting because, you know, on the on the vein of, you know, our, ba- our brain, our, our pattern recognizers, and you, you mentioned uh, dosage being an incredibly important thing, it seems that in some ways, things like psilocybin and whatnot, they, they disrupt the pattern recognition, and they allow us, like you said, to expand that pattern recognition into different spaces and to allow us to look maybe and experience in places that we wouldn't otherwise go. And I think to the to the point that you were making, the dosage is really important because, I mean, I, I know people that have gone and done ayahuasca for the very first time and very much overdone it, and it seems that their patterns are disrupted on such a huge level that they really have sort of troubles reintegrating back, but people that do it responsibly have a completely different experience, right? They're able to integrate that experience and and really move forward with life and have a whole different view and perspective, much like what you've talked about, but sort of done irresponsibly. It's almost like they detach in some way and, and sort of lose that connection to the current sort of uh, grounding in reality. Uh, so it's really interesting to hear you talk about the importance of dosage. I appreciate that. Yes, I mean, yes, that it, it is very important. Now, of course, this is just this is not advocating. Of course, one can't do that. But, but there are other ways. The idea is that there are other ways of maybe getting there as well. Music, art, you know, experiencing awe and wonder, and figuring out what it is for you that enables you to experience awe and wonder. And we should also mention that if you're going to step into uncertainty, however you're going to do it, you need a certainty from which to step. If you have no certainty, you're effectively just treading water, and what for you is that certainty that at some point you might question, but what is that certainty that enables you to step into uncertainty? Which is why I would like to suggest that people maybe spend, while they're spending time thinking about how they can step into uncertainty, how can they actually facilitate others? Because one of the primary reasons why people can step into uncertainty is because of love. That's the role of a parent. That's the role of a lover. That's the role of a teacher to create that foundation that enables you to step forward and then come back. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like um, it's interesting, like you just talked about love and the role of the lover. And it seems like, uh, you know, talking about uncertainty, it seems like great partnership really, as you were talking, it just kind of like hit me that like great partnership really is two people's abilities to enter into the space of uncertainty without attaching on to a sense of rightness, a, a sense of this is what I'm absolute about. This is what I'm absolutely certain about. Um, this is what I'm right about, you know, and that's where conflict really arises in those space. And to be able to step into conflict in a relationship, in an intimate relationship with that willingness to be uncertain must be 
I mean, for me, I, I look back and I think that it must play a huge role in, in really successful intimate relationships. I, I'd suggest fundamentally so. I mean, if you think about uh, perception at the most basic level, and let's remember our perception of color, and that color is not a function of the world. Color is a function of your brain and your history of interaction with the world. So it's in some sense, color perception resides in that space between us and the world. Um, but of course, the color is inside your head projected outwards. And the reason is because we have no access to that world. But what's true for an object is also true for another person. Whereas I can measure the where of a person and the what of a person and the when of a person, I can never measure their why. I can never be inside your head right now and know why you're doing what you're doing. You are fundamentally uncertain to me, which means every perception I have of you, in fact, every perception I have of another person is literally inside me projected outward. Every person I see is inside me, good or bad. We color the world. We project, we color people. We project the meaning onto them based on our history of experience, our meanings of data. So to connect and resonate with someone is when my projected meaning of someone happens to coincide with their projected meaning of themselves. Hence the power of listening. To listen is to listen, to be in a state of not A, to try to truly understand the why you do what you do, not simply what and where and when you do it. Yeah, very, very cool. Well, I mean, we unfortunately are, are uh, running out of time. So uh, I want to, I just want to kind of shift gears here and, and uh, dive into the work that you and your team are doing uh, at the Lab of Misfits. Can you unpack a little bit about, you know, why you started the Lab of Misfits, what it's all about, and uh, what people could expect if they went and checked it out? Yeah, so the aim, the fundamental aim of the Lab of Misfits is to facilitate doubt and courage in the world. And through the neuroscience of perception and to better understand what it is to be human and the principle of perception, and then to use those principles to enable people to see differently. The way we do that is we take the lab out of the lab. We take the lab and we put it into the real world. So we create physical experiences. We effectively create a nightclub theater experience for people. And everything in this space is an experiment. Hence, we call it the experiment. But there's dancing, there's drinking, all, all kinds of things happening. And the idea is that we then give the data and the understanding of the data back to people. So not only do they have a great, hopefully aesthetic, beautiful culture experience, but they also walk away with a better understanding of themselves. And we walk away with a better understanding of what it is to be human and also facilitators of people be becoming more open as well as creating, uh, it's basically experiment as experience. That's one of the things we do. We're doing a number of things, but all of them are an attempt to actually create experiences, get people back out into the world where your brain actually makes meaning to enable a deeper understanding, more empathetic view of nature and human nature. Very cool. And then the, the other company that you're working on is, uh, I believe, a company called Ripple, and that's focused in on uh, augmented reality. Is that correct? That's right. So the Lab of Mystics effectively spins out companies along the way. And so one of the companies that spun out was called Ripple. It's the AR platform, AR company that we started about five years ago. So this is before Oculus Rift and et cetera, where the question we're asking is, could we use digital to enable people to actually experience the world in a new way? And if we think about what makes the best technologies, the best technologies enables to make the invisible visible. So our argument is that by using augment, augmented reality, we get people out into the world, seeing things, meanings that they hadn't seen before. Well, the proof of that concept then happened with Pokemon Go. 
So on the back of Pokemon Go, of course, um, what we're doing became increasingly interesting. So we enable people to actually tell stories and leave those stories in the world. Then we have a new platform coming out where people can choose their animal spirit and they can float their spirit in the world and it follows them wherever they go. So you can get your phone out and you can see all these animal spirits and each one is attached to a person. And then you can learn and engage with them, but you have to be in physical proximity. It's very, very cool, man. It's, <laughs> I can't wait to try that out at some point. Uh, and then finally, just, just as we're wrapping up, I know that you have a book, Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently. Can you just unpack that a little bit? Because I cannot wait to pick that up. Yeah, so deviate is basically the neuroscience of deviance. That to deviate is to be yourself and to understand what that self is and how you can actually then see differently. So all the things that we were talking about exist within deviate. And it's basically to celebrate deviance. But what do I mean by that? If you take a room of, say, men, and you create a Venn diagram of all those men, the bits that overlap are what define, in a sense, the average man in that space. But to, to know someone is to not know the bits that overlap, it's to know the bits that don't overlap. In other words, how they literally deviate from average. To love someone is to love their deviance, not their normality. And so the whole point of deviate is to create that space for people to explore the nature of, of, of deviating, which is to then create the possibility of seeing differently. Incredible. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Bo. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Awesome. So uh, for everybody else out there, definitely go over to mantalks.com and check out more podcasts, blog posts, and any videos from our live events. You can learn more about Bo at bolotto.com. It's B-E-A-U Lotto, L-O-T-T-O.com. Uh, you could also go to Lab of Misfits. Uh, we'll have all those links in the show notes. Uh, and for everybody else, we will catch you next week. This is Connor Beaton signing off. I'll see you next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Yeah.